Welcome to episode 242 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. Our special guest on the show today is Dan Harvey. Dan is head of product design and brand at The Dots, which is a professional network for no-collar professionals. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So for our podcast this week, we're going to dig into uh, one of our favorite topics, which is the future of work. And Dan is uh, uh, somewhat of a specialist on the future of work because he's helping to create it over at the Dots. Uh, so, so we brought Dan in today to uh, lend us some insight uh, into that topic. So we're going to start off, Dan, with, uh, with, with a question about what, what are the values and behaviors that are changing among job seekers and uh, how is that in response or anticipation of the future of work as you see it? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a terrific question and really gets to, I think, the heart of the audience that we're trying to address at the dots. So, you know, when we talk about no-collar professionals, what we're really talking about is that sort of almost generational difference between job-seeking behaviors in the marketplace. So if in the past you had white-collar professionals that were being served very well by a platform like LinkedIn that was very much about, you know, your, your CV or your resume uh, and, and those the connections that you can derive from that, I think... Uh, all those behaviors that we typically think of as being part of that sort of white collar pattern, you know, climbing a corporate job ladder, uh, being sort of managerial as a pathway to success, uh, super niche skill specialization, uh, constantly chasing promotions and paychecks. What we're seeing with no collar professionals uh, is that there really isn't uh, a good home uh, for their professional needs and, and their networking needs. And that's what we're trying to create at the dots. So, you know, I think the behaviors that we see there is uh, a preference for job hopping rather than climbing a job ladder, moving around from uh, company to company, uh, in, in increased emphasis on freelancing uh, over, over sort of staffed gigs, uh, uh, a real shift towards an emphasis on creative-led skills rather than sort of more administrative ones. Uh, this constantly evolving skill set uh, and, and valuing purpose over paycheck. I, I think those are all the sorts of behaviors that we're seeing in the, in the audiences that we, we serve here, which are largely people within, uh, within and around the creative industries. So creators of all stripes, freelancers, entrepreneurs, uh, th those sorts of those sorts of people, and, and generally skewing uh, younger, so millennial audiences largely. Dan, you talked about the job hopping, and you, of course you mentioned freelance. But with companies, there is, I think, still the desire to have innies, to have employees, and that is sort of in direct contradiction to the the ethos of you know the millennials and the younger workers of wanting more variety and moving around. How do you see those? those things sort of interacting with each other. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they're I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. So I think what we see with I, I think there are 
you know, Silicon Valley is actually home to the job hop phenomenon. So if you look at any of the any of the data around companies like Apple or Facebook or Google, some of whom are our clients on, on, on the platform, um, you know, their their retention numbers are just terrible. You know, you, you keep you keep high paid, super in demand talent at your company for about a year, 18 months, and, and then they move to the next company. So, you know, it's that sort of shell game that's happening with talent as they go from a place like Google to Uber to Twitter to, to wherever. Um, so, and they're, they're not going from freelance positions to freelance positions necessarily, but they're going from staff position to staff position. Um, so I think, I think sometimes people too easily conflate freelance with job hop or freelance with gig economy and contract worker. And I think those things are all sort of all have a different nuance and can sometimes overlap, but they're, they're often different things. That makes a lot of sense because Silicon Valley is so progressive, but how do you see that translating into the Midwest and in places that aren't, you know, that aren't organizations that are super progressive and on the cutting edge that are actually more, um, you know, more conservative or are, are they coming around to that as well? Is that going to be a harder process? I mean, how, how does that translate into the broader market? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a terrific, terrific question. I, I think one thing that we're seeing already uh, is that I, I think based on the last survey I saw about 20% of all roles in the U S were freelance. Um, and I think that that number is expected to go up to about 50% by 2020. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a pattern that we're seeing, uh, in other places, uh, and in sort of coastal environments and, and in the creative industries that could potentially start to seep into the, into the center, uh, and across other industries. But time will tell. Uh, I come from an agency background by and large and, I know in that context uh, and in consultancies and stuff, uh, account managers and people responsible for margins and bottom lines and stuff always hated using freelancers because they were a bigger hit to, bigger hit to their margins uh, and would always want to have staff talent. But, but sometimes, frankly, uh, some roles are just, you know, people, people don't want to sort of live in them forever. So you have to sort of turn to, freelancers to deal with that. And that gets into an interesting segue about potentially automation and uh, how some roles might change and things like that. But it's a, it's definitely a heady topic. Yeah. Since, since you sort of uh, raised the specter of automation, Dan, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe we should talk about that a little bit uh, just as this sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, scary monster right could be for for creatives and and the idea that you know automation is coming for a lot of different kinds of jobs uh, i think creatives uh and and excuse the the use of the word creatives you know creative uh people in 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 a variety of of different industries um i i i think we think our skill sets are unique and and such that they can't be replicated by machines, uh, by AI, by uh, computer software. And, you know, we've we've seen over over the the past couple of years, we've we've seen sort of 
initial evidence that, hey, you know, that's, you know, perhaps not the case and, and creative class folks, you know, get ready. Dan, what's, what's your take on that? And how does that fit into your vision of, of uh, how the future of work progresses? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a terrific question uh, and a complicated and compacted one. But I think in general, you know, at the, at the dots, we, we believe that, that creative skills are the sort of best protection against automation. Uh, and, and I think e- even if you do sort of look at some of the, some of the scarier trends that you, that you were, you were hinting at, I think we are, we're still seeing most automation or m- most early stage automation or current stage automation actually tackling um, sort of mid-level managerial things. So it's, it's interesting, but you know, in the last, you know, last 50 years or whatever, parents were telling their kids to, you know, don't go off and do that art education or be a fine artist or be a designer or whatever. You need to be an accountant. You need to be a lawyer. Uh, and those are the jobs that are sort of hitting, getting hit by automation uh, a bit more significantly right now, particularly as AI progresses. Um, and, and I don't, you know, I don't think, I don't think we should be classist when we talk about the risk of automation. I think obviously, uh, factory work and, and things like that, uh, have, have been hit far more than what we'll see with other professions. But I think it's also, you know, and even things like sort of automated, uh, you know, self-driving cars and what that's going to potentially do to, uh, truck driving gigs and, and things like that. I think, um, I, I think it's, I think automation is definitely a sort of classist weapon. I just think that sometimes the people that think they're protected because of their class or because of their seniority or because they're, they did what mom and dad told them they should do, I think they'll be surprised a bit more than, than even uh, people like myself in, in the creative industries will be. And I think you're, you know, um, you know, will, can you automate creativity? What will people accept? the output uh, from technology uh, as creative. That, that's a huge question. Uh, and I think, um, you know, in the creative industries, we've already seen some examples that, that sort of ask that question. So um, JWT uh, did their, their last Rembrandt yep. stunt a little while back. Um, stunts. And, I love you. I love that you just said stunt. I can't wait to hear your take on it now. Well, it's a stunt, right? I mean, it was it was done to sort of get attention and and drive a conversation, and it certainly did. Uh, and and that was that in and of itself was fantastic. But I don't think anyone was going to, you know, necessarily confuse it with. Uh, I don't think that was going to upend, you know, Damien Hurst's career as an artist or or anything like that. Um, Likewise, you know, uh, McCann in Japan have a AI creative director and they've actually even, uh, it's got a physical form. So it's a little robot with a little robotic arm (laughs) that holds a calligraphy pen and dictates briefs. (laughs) Um, and the, the output, uh, when, when McCann was doing their stunt around that, uh, it was this big, uh, it was for, uh, Mondelez company and some like mint, some breath mint kind of thing. Um, and what they were doing is they 
publicly went out to market with two ads, one that was created by a human and one that was a human creative director and one that was created by the AI creative director and his raft of human minions. Um, and interestingly, when, when the audience, when, when consumers were polled, the humans creative ad, uh, won out by a slim margin. But, uh, in the room at like conferences for like big ad, big wigs and stuff like that, they actually preferred the box creative. Uh, so that's where the sort of tensions are going to be, I think, in that space. I think, I don't think it's necessarily going to remove the need for human creativity or obviate it, but I do think that it's, you know, as with any technology, it's going to disrupt it and it's going to change it and it's going to further put a premium on, uh, the creatives that can be flexible and can be adaptive and who aren't trapped in sort of hyper niche specializations. Uh, there's this great quote from Heinlein uh, about that specialization is for insects. Uh, and I always love sort of referencing that. Uh, but I think curiosity is such a, such a huge component to human creativity. Uh, and I think that kind of thing is just hard to, hard to automate. And I think the, the, you know, when we, when we think about automation and sort of more, uh, you know, in higher class careers, you can, the, the big drawback isn't that it's going to steal all the work. It's that, and you can see this with, with doctors and surgeons, actually, robotic surgeons right now are actually having a negative impact on younger doctors learning their, learning their profession, learning their craft. Uh, and so that's the thing. Anything that's training data for a machine is training data for a human, right? It's, it's a real life experience, a real opportunity that you have to go through. It's doing the grunt work, right? It's earning your stripes. And if we sort of continue to automate those tedious things that we don't like doing, what, what's tedious for a senior designer is what's a necessary learning experience for a junior designer. So we've got to make sure that we're not sort of robbing people. We're not pulling up the ladder behind us and robbing opportunities from younger talent. Yeah, my uh, my feeling is that these types of tasks that you're describing are largely going to get automated, especially for... Mm -hmm. um, I mean, whether you're talking about laying out, you know, a book or an ad, or even, I mean, on on the music side of things, uh, uh, there are services now that have AI-driven mastering, right, of your yep. of your tracks. Um, now that mastering is, eh, you know, it's okay. Uh, it, it's not as nearly as good as a human being, but that doesn't mean it's you know not going to get better so exactly. so so i wonder if our conception of what it means to be the uh so-called junior creative is is actually i mean that's obviously just going to going to change outright and i think the flexibility the ability also to work with this technology and to uh, integrate it into some other conception of what it means to be a creative person in, you know, name your industry. I, I, I think that shift, uh, I think that shift is already underway. Uh, I, absolutely. And I think it, it will, it will change. And that's why I think curiosity is, is sort of the, the cornerstone talent. 
uh, that people still have to major on. And that's why I think, you know, when we think about education uh, and how we have to change education to better prepare future generations for automated workplaces and the like, uh, that's why I think it's increasingly important to put an emphasis on STEAM rather than STEM. Uh, and I think having having sort of arts education, having traditional liberal arts education in place and not demolishing that in a rush to make more and more engineers to feed the AI beast is going to be super critical. Yeah, that's a... Um... I, I I like that statement. At at the same time, I think there's uh, like that uh, that idea of like engendering curiosity, right? Like how uh, what are the what are the ways in which we can uh, you know encourage that in in students? What are the ways that we can um, enable them to uh, be more curious about about the world. I mean, obviously, there's there's things that you can do in the classroom, but then there's there's also just the entirety of of you know when you're outside of the classroom and and you have to sort of drive your own career. How do we encourage curiosity uh, in uh, our our careers and and in the way we're um, we're functioning? That is not. Uh, something that I think is on the top of the list right now, uh, encouraging curiosity. What's your take on that, Dan? Well, I, I think that that dovetails into in, into uh, another question. That's about how do we design roles uh, within organizations to really uh, make the most out of the people that are in them. Uh, and, and I think that means that we just have to be you know, if, if the future is going to demand that we have sort of strong generalists or hybrids, uh, we, we sometimes call them slashies here at the dots. Um, you know, if, if we're going to, if we need people who can go from one task to another, uh, then we have to be as fluid uh, and as adaptive as they are when it comes to sort of creating roles and opportunities within our organizations uh, to, to better take advantage of that. So I think, you know, emerging professions and emerging skill sets, uh, are, are something that every organization is going to have to get much better at recognizing and not sort of, you know, lazily assuming that, oh, that's, that's just some weird title that means the same thing as what I've always called the thing that I'm thinking of. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we went through a period of time where people were, were genuinely calling them stupid, calling themselves stupid things, you know, design ninja or, <laughs> you know, AI unicorn or whatever the fuck. Um, but, you know, there are new roles that are changing because design is changing. So my, my friend David Malouf uh, spends a lot of time talking about design operations or design ops now. And that's, you know, to one of your earlier points about how opportunities are changing and the roles of creativity and design is going to have to change accordingly. That's part, that's one vector for it. So, uh, and that's one of the things that we're trying to do as, as a platform as well is to, uh, be a tool where that the sort of emerging skill sets and emerging professions can, uh, 
that, that we, we can be a sort of early warning system or an early detection system for those sorts of changes. So for, for our listeners who are sort of resonating with your perspective and, and wanting to engage this future more, more directly, how can the dots help them? How could they interact with the dots to their benefit? Sure. So uh, it starts with uh, making a profile uh, and, and then going from there. So one of the one of the big things that we're trying to do is to, to create create a platform where everyone that has contributed to great work gets the credit they deserve for it. Uh, and, and, you know, I think in the creative industries all too long, we've uh, we've let award shows and egos dictate who actually gets to publicly take credit for things. Um, and we're trying to, we're trying to upend that. And further, what we're trying to do is actually create something where our clients who are recruiting talent on the platform, uh, can actually hire whole teams to work for them rather than just hire individuals. So it's about creating, using, using the work that people and teams do to create real trusted networks and meaningful connections and not just sort of weird, I want to meet you for a coffee kind of connections that happen on platforms like LinkedIn. Uh, but so yeah, we've got, uh, we've got a website, uh, the hyphen dots.com. Uh, and we've also, uh, in, in European markets just launched our first iOS app. Uh, so anyone that's interested in, in the kinds of things I've been talking about can, uh, use either of those to sort of create a profile and, uh, look at the look at the roles that we have available and uh, uh, great projects and take inspiration from them and, and all that good stuff. So so Dan, are there are there companies or uh, you know specific instances of where you see um, you know this model sort of successfully um, successfully being taken up? And what what I mean by that is. Um, you know, we're talking about more of a project-driven but highly networked environment in which people are fluid and can uh, sort of go from project to project or from from role to role and have that uh, uh, fluidity combined with you know some some sense that I'm going to have ongoing work, right? So, um, are are there any sort of leaders in this space? Uh, obviously, besides yourselves, you know, who are trying to build this up. Yeah, so I, we've definitely got, we, we definitely look at things in the marketplace. Uh, and we see a lot of companies that are doing parts of what we're doing. Uh, so uh, in the States, working, not working uh, is definitely trying to sort of speak to the needs of that freelancer audience uh, that is part of our overall audience uh, here in, in the, in the UK, uh, you know, Juno uh, was, was doing something similar, although doing more of a kind of service style thing than we would do. So helping you with invoices and things like that. But then, you know, if you sort of broaden it out to uh, sort of creative inspiration, then you could look to look to uh, products like Behance uh, Tumblr, even ostensibly Pinterest and the like. 
Yeah, I could uh, for sure see the the applicability of this model in in other industries. In in particular, uh, at at our studio, we do a lot in the healthcare uh, industry, and one area that is hugely lacking in ability to coordinate is around care planning and caregiving. So, um, you know, wh- whether you're sort of looking for um, uh, folks to help you take care of your aging parents, or you've got someone who needs a certain amount of rehabilitation and, you know, uh, uh, care at home and then getting out to the physical therapist or what have you. There's a team that coalesces around that, um, that project, that piece of work for a time. It's very, uh, you know, modular in the, in that way. And then once the, the project is completed, you know, the person is, uh, sort of back on their feet or whatever, um, that's, that's done. Uh, and, and, uh, the caregiver or the nurse or what have you could, could move on to, to the next thing. But, but this, this fluidity that, that we're describing as works future, I think does have, uh, the ability to be ap- applied in a- at least uh, uh, sections of of other industries that that I'm familiar with. Yeah, I absolutely think so, and I, I think one of the things that's sort of also interesting and, and related to that is, you know, I, I don't think I don't think as a platform we would ever sort of go after after that audience because there, I think what's interesting is. You know, there, there are, there are obviously patterns at a high level that, that could sort of manifest across a lot of different industries. But I think the, the sort of specific needs and, and the, the sort of depth of knowledge that you would need to fine tune those things for audiences is, is what would be the hard graft and the, and the, the hard work. Um, so I, and I think that that's one of the other things that we're starting to see a bit of a backlash against is that sort of one size fits all social platform. Uh, so I, I think, you know, the, the sort of bigger tech conversation right now around time well spent, uh, is potentially going to be a boom for sort of niche, uh, social networks, niche professional networks, niche networks in general. Uh, to, to sort of take place and really serve particular audiences. Uh, and I think that can, that can happen as long as the products that speak to those audiences and materialize around those needs, uh, don't get stuck in a sort of ad revenue model where you're sort of forced to chase daily active users or monthly active users or whatever. And, uh, you know, our own business model doesn't rely on that. And that's why we're able to, really serve the particular needs of our, of our audience, uh, and the, the sort of niche community that we're, we're dedicated to. So I, I wanted to wind up our discussion today, Dan, with, uh, uh, what your recommendations were for designers who are just, you know, just starting in the industry. We've, we've sort of laid out that, that, uh, the environment's changing rapidly. They've got lots of things to think about, you know, what, what's the one or two things that, you know, if you were mentoring a young designer who's looking at this landscape and saying, what do I do next? Uh, uh, what, what would you say to him or her? Yeah. So I actually do mentor young designers. So this, this should be an easy answer for me. Um, but, but I, but I, I really think that it comes down to, uh, 
uh, making sure that your skills are, are always fresh. Uh, you know, from as a designer, one of the things that has been sort of eye-opening uh, in the last couple of years is that there's just been this sort of uh, almost Cambrian explosion of prototyping tools. Uh, and that's meant that prototyping as a skill uh, is something that designers have had to get really good at. Uh, it's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing, but I think, you know, it used to be uh, that, that a designer was someone that, you know, made a, you know, uh, John Maida sort of talks about the sort of transition from uh, almost design as object, design as a thing to what he calls computational design. Um, but I, but I think it's just about keeping your skills fresh, uh, and not getting sort of hung up on or conflating tools with skills. Uh, and, and I think it's about maintaining your curiosity and constantly finding, uh, new ways of seeing so that you're not always trying to solve the same problems in the same way, because that's obviously the definition of insanity. Um, but yeah. Very cool. Well, Dan, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate having you on the show. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at dneemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. Dan, how about you? Uh, I am Dan C. Harvey on Twitter. So D-A-N-C-H-A-R-V-E-Y. Uh, and you can uh, see uh, all the great work that my team and I have been doing at the hyphen dots.com. Or uh, if you're in Europe, you can uh, type the dots into your app store and download our download our new shiny app that we've just launched today. So that's it for episode 242 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.